Hi everyone, and this is the roadmap from Auto Finance News since 1996, the nation's leading newsletter on automotive lending and leasing. I'm JJ Hornblast. Welcome to the podcast. This is our weekly wrap on what's happening in auto finance for the week of August 24. Uh, before beginning, I want to thank Auto Finance News advertisers um, for their ongoing support. And uh, they are uh, Alpha, CCC Information Services, and Daskek uh, DeFi Solutions, Westlake, and LexisNexis. So thank you very much to our sponsors for their support. I am here with Joey Pizzolato. Hi, Joey, uh, the Deputy Editor of Auto Finance News, and Amanda Harris, uh, our Associate Editor. Uh, welcome to both of you. It is... Friday, August 28. Uh, this week was marked by Donald Trump's acceptance of the Republican nomination for uh, president, uh, social unrest in Wisconsin, an increase in consumer spending by 1.9% in July, a slower pace than in the previous two months, and the Federal Reserve marking a major shift in how it guides the economy putting job growth preeminent when considering monetary policy and not guarding against inflation as it has for, I don't know how many decades, I believe three. And that means low interest rates for a very, very long time. The market probably needs low interest rates for a very, very long time because the theme of our podcast today is clearly credit performance and credit deterioration. Um, a one story from this week's uh, site relates to payment extensions, uh, which have been predominating in auto finance since the start of the pandemic. Payment extensions on auto loans securitized declined for the second straight month in June, but this was a 77 basis point decline on the prime side for prime credits and a 124 basis point decline on the subprime side, leaving still 1.4% of outstandings, or at least those that were uh, securitized um, in deals rated by S&P, 1.4% of prime deals that are on extension and 7.7% of subprime deals on extension. Uh, that subprime number is a big number representing 1.6 billion in outstandings um, against that particular pool, the S&P rated pool. So this is, these numbers are emblematic of the market as a whole. Joey, would you consider these declines significant, insignificant, or are you uncertain as to what, how, how significant they are? <laughs> Great question. Um, I would say they're, they're significant in the sense that they are declining. Whether that decline is 
very meaningful, I think remains to be seen. Like you said, those numbers are still pretty high um, in, in uh, kind of comparison to what they normally are. Um, however, you know, I think the industry is sort of at a point where you have to just take what you can get and hope that the trend continues. But I do think that the, these numbers are still unreasonably high. So it's, it's interesting that these numbers, you know, that we talk about, extensions, uh, whether you call them extensions, deferrals, whatever, credit performance generally, it seems like we are really heading for a, a major milestone on these at some point in September. Why is that the case, Joey? Well, um, it's, when you look towards forward to September, um, you know, a lot of these deferrals are multi-month. So, so we have deferrals that are two month, three month. A couple months ago, they were averaging four months on extension. Um, now we're, we're down to two, um, but that number's slowly going down. So, you know, as, as we just talked about, these numbers are high and, and eventually they're going to have to come off extension. Lenders only, even now, still can only allow a certain number of extensions every year per consumer um, to, to, you know, to make, to continue to, excuse me, I can't speak this morning, to keep, um, to keep these loans in like a performing status. You mm -hmm. can't, you can't extend it for, you know, six to eight months. It's just not reasonable. Um, so, so come September, I think a lot of these loans are really, they're going to have to go back into either active status or they're going to have to start being accelerated. So when, you know, I, I look at, and this is kind of for both of you, um, when you look at these numbers um, and then, and then put them next to um, the consumer financial hardship number. So for, first of all, there, there's this notion that has been uh, presented by TransUnion uh, measuring uh, auto accounts in financial hardship. So first of all, let, let's just define what that means because that's not necessarily a delinquency number or a deferral number. First of all, Amanda, tell us what that is um, uh, first. Definitely, yeah. So financial status is, like you said, it's not the same thing as a delinquency or a deferral. Um, it's actually kind of the opposite. So. They, that means that they've been, it can be accounts that have deferred payments, but it can also be accounts that are in a forbearance program. It can be accounts that have been frozen or have a past due payment that's been frozen. Um, basically, any you know, those types of topics or accounts could fall under um, mm -hmm. in financial hardship status. And when they're in that status, they're obviously not being, you know, pushed to the next level into delinquency, into, um, you know, charge-offs, anything like that. They're kind of just held where they are. Um, and, and so some of those accounts, people might still be making payments, even if they have that financial hardship uh, status applied to them, but that's pretty much what it means. But this, these are stressed accounts, right? And this is stressed accounts over and above existing, you know, delinquency, uh, delinquent accounts. So the number, the percentage of that of those accounts on the auto side right now 
rests at 6.16%. So what it seems to me is, is that whatever is the current, I mean, is this fair? Whatever is the current delinquency rate out there uh, for a lender, um, TransUnion is implying that you should probably bump it up by another 6%. Um, is that is that is that one how is that a fair way to look at it? Is that how we should be thinking about current credit performance? Because when you look at the delinquency numbers, you know they're remarkably tame, uh, historically tame um, uh, versus you know currently. Right, right. So definitely, you know, they don't know exactly how much just yet. Um, so in talking with TransUnion, you know, they, they definitely have a feeling that those numbers are going to go up because obviously as deferral programs in, we talked a few minutes ago that, you know, a lot of them are, were three, four months long. So those started, you know, back in March. So they're going to start coming off pretty soon. And while lenders are still offering some programs on a case-by-case -case basis, like Joey mentioned, they can't do that forever. Um, so we are going to start seeing those numbers come up. It's just right now we don't really know exactly how much that will go up because we don't know. In some of those accounts, people are still making payments. So it could be that they come out of that you know, financial hardship status and they're back in active status. They're making payments again. Um, but it really, stimulus plays part of that and whether we're, whether we're going to get another round of help um, from the federal government, you know, those kind of things play into this as well. So there's a lot of unknown factors, um, but I think it is fair to say that those rates are going to go up um, in the next couple of months because of all those programs kind of ending and those accounts will obviously have to switch over. Yeah. Joe, did you want to add something about this? Oh, you know, I was, I was just going to say, you know, just to tack on to what you both have said, um, uh, you know, another piece of this puzzle is um, partial payments. And that's something that we're going to be looking into a little bit more in depth next week. Um, and to see how, how consumers are, what the um, volume is for partial payments on accounts and, on accounts and deferrals, because that's also going to give us a better understanding, um, not necessarily a clearer view, but at least a better understanding of, you know, expectations as to how high, you know, delinquencies will rise, as you said, kind of come September. Um, Joey, how do they account for partial payments vis-a-vis -vis overall credit performance? So my understanding, um, and this is just a pre preemptive understanding, um, is that um, a partial payment is considered, um, or a payment is considered a partial payment if it's been in deferral and they've made, um, I, I don't know the percentage of the payment, but at least the lender has received a, a small amount of money at least once during the deferral period. And then their, their account, that's, that account is, is uh, accounted at, that account would be active. That's no, still considered, no, that's it considered be, it would still in be default. Considered in deferral. In deferral, excuse yes. me, but as long, but if there's a partial payment, then you're saying that's a mitigating factor on the deferral versus a consumer that has zero payment whatsoever. Yeah, so, so I think the reason that they, they, um, they monitor this figure is, is it kind of points to, you know, the, the health of the consumer, you know, maybe they can't make the full payment, but they can make a partial payment, you know, that indicates that there still is some income, you know, rolling in. Um, and they're, they're not completely, you know, cut off from, you know, without benefits, without an employment, employment um, 
and, and that they are willing to make their payment on their auto loan. Yeah, I think that's why the, this consumer spending number is, is kind of important because if the growth rate on that is slowing and, you know, as, as ever, as, you know, is, is sort of known, the American, American consumer is, and is, uh, the American consumer's spending is the greatest driver of economic uh, growth in this country, you know, like Americans, Americans know how to spend. Um, so um, if that pace has slowed, then that implies, you know, some of the return of the coronavirus infections across the country are starting to uh, once again depress economic activity. And, um, and so therefore, uh, you know, like that's, this is all going to be a timing issue. Uh, and, and, and one of the, the factors, uh, one of the sort of considerations on timing is potentially, or the, 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 the exit doors uh, for that um, is uh, refis. Um, so refi activity in the auto space has n historically been nominal. Um, what might make, why might refis fix this situation? Um, well, you know, to start, um, from a, from a consumer's perspective, you know, um, that's a great way to lower your payment and, you know, one of the only ways to lower your payment is to, you know, get your interest rate changed. You can't really do anything about the principal, but you can lower your interest rate. Um, so that helps with affordability concerns, especially under, you know, stressed economic environments. From a lender's perspective, right, it does two things. It allows them to get a new loan on the books uh, because, you know, technically they are originating a loan and they get a fee for that refi. And then it also... Um, a lot of credit unions that we found are, um, and, and other lenders are offering, you know, 90 day deferral, deferrals, payment deferrals on the first payment, which is essentially extending this deferral period that we've been talking about. Um, so it could work um, to get a new loan on the books, defer some payment, help the customer out, um, and then, you know, it, the old loans wouldn't be extended through, you know, excessive deferrals. Right. But this folds another le level of risk into the credit, right? Because you, you now have consumers, I mean, you said, right, that you've got extensions that have been up to four months. So you've got consumers, if they refi, they haven't made a payment in seven months. And there is certainly the potential that spending change over the course of seven months and to reincorporate auto payments into the household budget when you're under stress, maybe somebody's unemployed, you've lost the federal unemployment, you know, boon, uh, extra payment, um, you know, maybe even the person who's employed, uh, their earnings have, have come down. I, I mean, I, I just don't see how this doesn't become an amplification of credit that, you know, maybe this market hasn't really seen before because you've got deferrals on a, on a basis that you've never seen. And you've got the potential, it seems like, uh, you know, our colleague Marcy Bellis wrote about this, that there is sort of this renewed interest in refinancing. Um, and, you know, maybe refi will be at a level that you've never seen before. 
And so, you know, this is like a compounding risk factor that maybe the market has, has, that has never been in the market before. I mean, is that a fair assessment or do you look at this, you know, do you see this and it is both of you, do you see this as, as just kind of a positive bridge to uh, financial solvency for the American, you know, auto finance consumer? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say it's, it's absolutely a fair concern, and it, it's one that, you know, I think all lenders have to be very cognizant of, um, you know, if they are going to step into this refi space. You know, you look historically, um, refinance loans perform better than, you know, the, the original loan that they came from, um, just historically, but, you know, we're in very unhistoric times, right? This is new, new uh, like a new forest, for lack of a better analogy. Right. Um, so so it's really, really hard to say. But I do think that, you know, there is there is risk involved um, and, you know, quite a bit. And I think that, you know, we know that lenders are more prudent in you know, their credit box. And I, I would think that that would that would, um, you know, lead into their refinance operation and strategy as well. What kind of what kind of you know what kind of sentiments are are you getting from like the S and P's and the transunions and uh, uh, of the auto finance that are that are tasked with monitoring and uh, disclosing risk? I would say the best phrase to describe it is cautious optimism, right? Like. We're following the data, you know, the data, delin or deferrals, excuse me, um, you know, they're kind of, they're, the volume is going down, so that's a good thing. Delinquencies are still down. Obviously, they're kind of, you know, that number is, is affected by, you know, deferrals. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, both, all of them, especially S&P, when, when we talk to, um, you know, them, they're very cognizant of the fact that there is still a lot unknown and really you know as for as long as the coronavirus is around you know that unknown is is really going to be very prevalent um so i would say you know we're following the data or they're following the data but you know with the understanding that this could turn take a turn for the worst at at any moment still you know i will say this joey that um you know, there's this general sentiment that following the credit crisis, you know, oh, the auto, the auto assets uh, performed so well, um, and and they really were, and it's true, and it's true on a relative basis, they really did not uh, suffer from the kind of credit erosion, underwriting erosion that really plagued the mortgage market, but you know, that's the type of thing, and there, and there's that similar there's that similar conventional wisdom now oh you know sure it's 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 a, the you know the recession is is severe but you know we we've underwritten well in the past and we we're underwriting well now uh I, i'm not sure that that logic holds and uh, i wonder whether there's a false sense of security in the short duration uh, of the auto loan uh, that says, you know, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, you know, well, you, you've got $1.6 billion of outstandings um, that can, you know, uh, on the subprime side um, with, you know, so essentially you're talking about 
$5 billion of outstanding so that we can just, you know, erode um, uh, in this current scenario that, that uh, I'm not sure that lenders today think is going to, you know, is going to erode and wither up. Um, yeah, yeah. And to your, to your point, um, you know, that $1.6 billion in subprime loans, um, that's, you have to remember, that's only securitized assets. I mean, yeah. think of how many, um, you know, subprime loans, outstandings, um, you know, are across all lenders um, that aren't, you know, securitized, which, which is a, a, a large amount. Yeah. So, you know, these are, there are a lot of unaccounted for loans um, that, that aren't represented in the, in the data still yeah i just add like a, a side thought to that so sure. you know i think some of the optimism is coming from you know historically people at least like in the u.s and in places where cars tend to be you know almost crucial like i can't get anywhere without a car we don't really have great like public transportation where i am you know so i think some of the optimism comes from historically people have always kind of put in certain areas that auto loan kind of at the top, making sure they make at least those payments if, if something else has to kind of be held off or, or they have to get a deferral over something else, they're gonna keep their car. Um, so I think that's some of the optimism, but I think what we have to think about is this unique situation with the shelter at home and, and a lot of people are working from home now that maybe wouldn't have been working from home before. So it's gonna be interesting, I think, to see how that plays out and if that still remains a priority if the whole work from home thing becomes more of a long-term you know, right. years situation rather than a few months that everyone kind of thought, then that sh priority might shift a little bit because um, sure. they may not need their car as much. So I think that's just another fact that, that is on their minds, but I think they're still kind of keeping that optimism of, well, I, they're going to keep paying their car payments. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think also, you know, to couple the work from home, it's also the boom in uh, e-commerce sales, which, you know, has, I mean, the numbers are crazy, uh, you know, just significant. And so, you know, maybe also what you're talking about is kind of like a second car dynamic. Well, I've got two, uh, maybe I don't need that second one. So, um, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that, I think that there's more going on here than just, this is the same scenario that we had um, post, um, you know, Great Recession. Um, so let's not be Debbie Downers uh, only and uh, look forward to next week. So in, in addition to the partial payments, uh, what uh, is in store for our readers next week? So next week, we do have two updates coming from uh, some prime lenders. So we'll be doing some updates on that. Um, and I think we'll we'll kind of hold off on sharing what that is just yet. But we have okay. that in the works. Yeah, I'm not I, telling I can't, I can't believe I can't even find out what that is. That's nope. just not fair. Um, <laughs> you know, we work together. Okay, anyway, okay. Um, I will, I do want to mention to everyone uh, that uh, we are, we're really pleased uh, to have relaunched autofinancenews.net this week with more multimedia content. Uh, so very exciting. And I urge you to check out the site um, and see how we've uh, even, uh, we've improved autofinancenews.net even more. And uh, of course, don't forget to join us October 20 to 22 for the Auto Finance Summit, and uh, you can get details at Auto Finance Summit 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. I want to thank everyone for joining us on this edition of The Roadmap. We will see you online and here next time. Thank you all so much. Thanks.